this pers- particular message has been boiling in my heart for probably three or four years, and it, is, uh, it has been a, a, a slow formation and maybe a reformation uh, of sorts. That is, um, over the past four, four years or so, the Lord has really um, matured, maybe it's, it's arrogant to say that, I don't know, matured my understanding of the Christian life. Um, in terms of what it means to live like a, 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 a radical, vibrant, healthy Christian life. That is, if you were to listen to my sermons 15 years ago and listen to them in the last three years, you will notice a difference because there's this, the change in perspective. And I want to tell you about that change in perspective or that change. If you've been attentive over the last two or three years, you probably have picked up on it, but I wanted to make it explicit this morning. Um, but before I get there, several things have influenced me for this change. Uh, one is, is just the growing movement, current movement within uh Christianity, um, especially on the American side, American soil, um, a movement which um, often uses the term radical, and um, that's one thing. The second thing has to do with uh, my own, you know, journey of life and having children of my own and teenagers and getting older, and uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, um, an honesty that comes with life the older you get when you realize, wow, I had that all wrong, or at least it was distorted. So just reflections on life. And the third one, of course, is scripture, because oftentimes things will, um, when, when, when we wrestle with things, the place we should go, of course, is back to the book. And to realize, okay, wait, I, I, had, I, had, I had parts of this distorted. So those, 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 those three things have come into play over the course of the last several years. Now, the movement I'm talking about, and most of you will probably know what I'm talking about, um, a, a, a movement that is... Uh, oftentimes go by the name, goes by the name of the radicals or a radical movement. Um, you have, see it on titles of books. You'll hear it in the content of messages at different uh, conferences and so forth. And, and I want to be first to say that I am wholeheartedly for someone living a radical life for Jesus and doing radical things for Jesus. This is not a, a, um, a critique. I hope this is um, rather a counterbalance of what I see as a, as a concern. And that is when we, when we talk about living a radical life for Christ, oftentimes the picture that emerges based upon the illustrations and life stories that are used are um, stories or pictures that are extraordinary. That is radical is like wedded to extraordinary. So we hear stories of people who will sell their home in rich suburbia and buy a really small home in a poor neighborhood in an urban center um, with the attempt to be a missionary there. That's extraordinary. Or someone leaving their home country and going to India and planting uh, an orphanage like uh, Amy Carmichael. That, 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 that's extraordinary. Or giving up a, a, a lucrative career and becoming a missionary in China. That too, we would consider or, uh, extraordinary. So those are kind of the examples that are often used to picture what radical is. Now, I think everyone in here would say that all those three things that I just mentioned are indeed extraordinary, and they are good. People have done those things. But I also think all of us would have to agree that not everybody is going to experience or be a part of something that extraordinary in terms of gaining public attention. Nor 
is every one of us going to be called to that as good as those things are? In fact, I would venture to say that some of those extraordinary things are rather rare. But, and here's the concern, if to be radical is to be extraordinary in those ways, well, what happens to the, to the Christian woman who serves as a secretary in a public school system? Goes to work day in, day out. She's filing and shuffling papers, taking phone calls, dealing with naughty boys who are waiting to see the principal. I was one of those guys. Or, you know, kids with colds or puking and having to call parents saying, hey, could you come pick the kid up? It's like, that doesn't qualify as extraordinary. And so, does the Christian secretary then conclude, I can't live a radical Christian life because I'm, I'm just a secretary? My, that's my concern, because I believe that no matter where you are and what you're doing, it can be fully and completely pleasing to God. So that, that was kind of my concern, is, is the, the, the attaching of extraordinary to radical, because it has the potential of degrading and diminishing the ordinary things that we do. And so you feel like, well, less of a Christian. And again, not a radical Christian because I'm just a secretary. Well, that was my concern, and, and it's been building over time. And then I, I, I read this article, Christianity Today, 2013. And I, I, I read it, and I, my heart was just like, yes, he's, 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 he shares my concern. One of the, the comments that he made, it just, it just sums it up, like the concern. The heroes of the radical movement are martyrs. That is, those, these are the stories, all right? Are martyrs and missionaries whose stories truly inspire, and they should inspire, along with families who make sacrifices to adopt children. Again, good things. Yet, the radicals' repeated portrait of faith, that picture underemphasizes the less spectacular, frequently boring, and overwhelmingly anonymous elements that make up much of the Christian life. It de-emphasizes the importance of those things, the ordinary stuff. Those don't get any press. Doesn't sell tickets to conferences. Well, you know, it, again, brewing in my heart, I told my wife a couple, uh, couple years ago, sitting on the back porch, somebody needs to write a book, and they need to title it Radically ordinary radically ordinary it sounds like a contradiction i think maybe that paradox is a better way of looking at it. Uh, radically ordinary and then just three weeks ago i came across a, a book titled ordinary and i realized someone wrote it it was just written last year by michael horton if you don't know anything about michael horton he's a solid um, scholar biblically grounded person and, and he, I picked up the book, by the way, absolutely worthy of a read. If there's one book this year you should read, you should read that. It's just easy to remember. Ordinary. That's what it's called. Ordinary. And he wrote this. He wrote, you know what? I'm going backwards here. He wrote, but I am convinced that we have drifted from the true focus of God's activity in the world. It is not to be found in the extraordinary, but in the ordinary. The everyday. And you know, the, uh, an honest reflection on life, right here, right now, most of what we do, probably 95% of it, is ordinary. 
You get up, you brush your teeth. Take a shower, do your hair, makeup. I don't have to do my hair, obviously. I skip that step. You know, you make breakfast for the kids, lunch for the kids, send them off to school, drive to school. Maybe you commute to work. Then you do something at work. I don't know what it is. In an office, in a construction zone. I don't know. But you do it. And it's probably just ordinary stuff. Then you get in your car, you commute back home and, and spend time with your kids maybe, or maybe you watch a TV show or you, you know, you take a, come, take a, take a walk with your wife. I, this is most of what we do. Ordinary stuff. Ordinary stuff. And what I, I believe like needs to happen, here's the perspective switch, is we need to embrace the importance of the ordinary and to recognize that that is the primary place in which and through which God works in those things. And to not to discount it or dis- diminish it or degrade it. That God works and moves in the very ordinary things of life. He, he moves in the church, not church secretary, the Christian secretary who works at a public school. Her life and her work, though ordinary, is, is meaningful. And one of the pivotal texts that has helped to realign me, now I'm going to scripture, is Colossians chapter 3, 23 through 24. Uh, those verses are Paul's instruction to a first century Roman slave who happened to hear about Jesus and come to Christ. These are instructions for how a slave is to view his life Look at what he does and live. But before I get there, let me just pan back for a second on the section in which these instructions are given. These instructions to the slave are given within the context of other instructions given to people in ordinary life. He gives instructions on marriage. Ordinary. Husbands, wives. He gives instructions on family. How a father is to treat his children and how his children are to treat the parents. Then he gives instructions to the slaves. And then he gives instructions to masters. This is how you're to live. Now, the point I want you to see is that he's addressing these instructions to ordinary, everyday life. But if you pan back through this section, you'll also recognize that the governing center in all of those ordinary relationships is Christ. So, the wife is encouraged, submit to your husband. Not a very popular verse in today's culture. Submit to your husband as unto the Lord. And when Paul uses the word Lord, he usually means Jesus. As unto Jesus. It's not ultimately about your husband, it's about Jesus. Then he gives instructions to the husband. Love your wife sacrificially as Christ loves the church. Again, he points to Jesus as the governing center of marriage. And by the way, if both of those two worked simultaneously, marriage would be a lot better. At least that's my opinion. Actually, it's not my opinion. It's in the scripture. That's just how it works. Kids, honor your father and mother that pleases Christ. Slaves, do your work as unto Christ. Masters, when you deal with people working underneath you, do so equitably and justly. You know why? Because you have a master over you. And you want to treat others as you want to be treated by your master. You see, the point is that Jesus is the governing center in all of those ordinary relationships. Now that's kind of the context. And that's ultimately where I'm going. Now, verses 23 and 24, it's one of the most condensed and concise kind of perspectives on how to view your life. Now, granted, it is written, the most direct application is to a first century Roman slave who had no rights. But I believe wholeheartedly that they are every bit as true for everyone who is here. And I 
believe it's obvious. This is what he writes. He writes to them. This is the instruction on how you're to view your work in your life. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Right here, kind of encapsulated in these two verses, and really encapsulated even in verse 23, he lays out both the scope, the manner, and the motive for life and for living in an ordinary situation. The scope, the manner, and the motive. The scope, verse 23, whatever you do, nothing is to be excluded from that statement. Whatever you do, all-inclusive, exhaustive. Whatever you do, not some of what you do, not part of what you do, but Whatever you do. You can imagine maybe what a job description was in the first century for a person who didn't own their own life. You will take care of the master's kids. You will take care of the master's clothes. You will probably be in charge of tutoring your master's children. You will cook and you will clean. You will take the latrine out and dump it in a, an appropriate place. You will chop wood. You will keep the fire going. You will clean up after everybody's mess. You will tend the garden and, and do any errand that the master wants you to do. All of those things are what you would call less than ordinary. Some would say it's just boring stuff. But that's included in the whatever you do. Whatever you do, you're supposed to do it as unto the Lord. That frees all of us to view our life in the same way. Whatever you do. From laundry to changing diapers to commuting in your car. That's all part of the whatever you do. Now that part I think is fairly clear. But we have to take whatever you do and place it over our life as a lens by which we see our work. All of it is to be lived and done in such a way as unto the Lord. So that's the scope. Whatever you do pounding nails or plumbing toilets. The manner in which it's to be done. He says, work heartily. A literal translation of those two words, work heartily, is work out of your soul. Work from your soul. That is, work from the heart. Care about what you do. Care about the quality of what you do. Pay attention to the detail of what you do. That's part of work from your soul. Now, most of us are smart enough to know the difference between half-hearted work and whole-hearted work. And whole-hearted work is what he's calling us to do as unto the Lord in the ordinary stuff of life. Half-hearted. What comes to mind is what we as teenagers rendered to our parents when they said, go out and wash my car. And we took the bucket of soap and the sponge and the hose, walked out there, and clean the car as quickly as you could to get it done with no more attention to detail than a yak in a china shop. And just by the time it's done and there's no drying off of the drips, or there's calcium deposits, no polishing of the chrome, no armor-alling of the tires, you just get it done. You do just enough to get by. That is not working wholeheartedly. But Let's change one simple item in that situation. Imagine for a moment your parents hand you, which mine did, the keys to the car. It was 1984, Chrysler LeBaron. said, you can use the car to pick up your girlfriend and go on a date. 
all of a sudden, same car, same bucket, same sponge, same soap, same hose. You're going out to the car and you were passionate about getting that car clean. I was. Did all the chrome, gussying up the car. I don't know the word gussy up the car. Armor all on the wheels. Take the, the vacuum and you, you vacuum up all those fossilized french fries that are between the seats and the Cheetos and you wipe everything down. And by the time you're done, you're like, oh, this is ready. I'm going to go pick up my, my date. Now, in that sense, it was a wholehearted work. One thing changed. The desire to please another. The desire to please another person. Motivated, moved the heart to go from half-hearted to full-hearted. That's how ordinary work actually becomes extraordinary work. Not so much in the nature of the work itself, but for who you do it for. And that's the third thing brought out in the text. And the most important part of it. Why? And where do we find the motive to actually work that way in life? Doing mundane things. The motive. Four, I think, most important words in verse 23. As for the Lord. As for the Lord. And he kind of restates it in verse 24. You are serving the Lord. You're serving Jesus. Again, keys to the car. You can pick up your date. Made all the difference. Here's work. Who you're doing it for should make all the difference. You're doing it for the Lord. And I take the, the verbiage of this, of as for the Lord, or serving the Lord, as worship language, offering language, sacrifice language. That is, we work as unto the Lord as a gift, as an offering of sacrifice to him, because we love him and trust him, and we want his name to be honored and exalted. That's, 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 that's what we do with our life, is worship Jesus with the way you do ordinary life. It's a good summation. Worship Christ. Offer to Christ the ordinary things that God has given you to do. Worship him. Offer them to him in love and faith. But let me take it a step deeper. We do not offer anything, sacrifice anything, or worship him apart from a response to what he has already done for us. And it's actually what he has already done for us and what he promises to do for us yet future that unleashes that motive to actually want to do it. Or let, let me use the language of Colossians 1. Like to, to recognize that the firstborn of all creation, the one by whom and for whom Everything was made, visible and invisible in heaven and on earth. The one who is preeminent, the one who is ahead over all things, the one in whom the fullness of God's presence dwells bodily, the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found, he laid down his life for me and you. He laid down his life for someone who's broken and twisted like you and like me that's the gospel and it's as we continue to encounter embrace and experience the fact that we love him because he first 
in a magnificent, unsearchable way left us. Where we depart from that, there will be no heart to, to work in life with all of our hearts. We will have no motive. It is the simple fact that he loved us first in a gracious and unimaginably merciful way that makes us want to love him back. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. I can't believe you call me son. I know me. I know my heart. There's no way that should be a reality, but it is a reality because one thing, you're great and you're gracious. Therein lies the motive. Who he is, what he's done. That prompts us to love. That prompts us to work in the ordinary things that most people would say, why are you paying a lot of attention to detail of that? I mean, jeez. Like, well, because someone bought me, paid for me. And you know, I'm going to add this in. The fact of the matter is, when Jesus paid our ransom, when he paid the price, he purchased us, we became his. Which means our life is not our own. We are not proprietors of our own stuff, possessions, or life any longer. He purchased us. We are his. He stamped his name on our time. You know, in the military, when you sign your life away, that's what they call it, signing your life away, right? You're signing your life away? Don't you know Uncle Sam owns you? What I don't want to tell you is that to everyone who's a Christian here, there's only one person who owns you and your time and your work, and that's Jesus. And that should make all the difference in the world in how we approach ordinary stuff in life because it's done for him as worship unto him. You know what I believe? I believe when that's done, like, again, picture a slave sweeping a floor, but he's doing it as a worship offering to the Lord. He's doing it with his heart. I think the Lord looks down, and you can put your own business, your own work, your own ordinary stuff in there. He looks down, and he is pleased. He is pleased. Justification, by the way, does not mean that Christ does not take pleasure in our activities. Ephesians 5, learn what pleases the Lord. Like, he delights in it. He's like, you can imagine a smile coming to his face. Like, he's actually changing a diaper for me. He's doing it good, too. If you can imagine that happening. There's no such thing really as ordinary in terms of God's sight. When it's offered to him as a sacrifice of worship, whatever we do, you know, working with our heart as unto the Lord for worship, he delights in it. Well, let me conclude this with, a, with an illustration. I hope this doesn't embarrass my daughter. So, 10 years ago, my daughter's five. Four and a half, five, five and a half. And um, she went to school and, and she made me something for Father's Day. Right? She made me something for Father's Day. What a four and a half, five-year-old could do. She didn't have a job, no bank account. She couldn't buy me anything. So she made me a pie. A tie. <laughs> right? It's been hanging in my, my closet for 10 years. Now, it's made of ordinary stuff. Paper. Got some yarn. String. And a bag with some stale pretzels and some cheese crackers. That I will never eat. This isn't extraordinary. Before you judge what I just said, listen to what I'm going to say now. This stuff is not extraordinary. 
Extraordinary would have been a Lamborghini, a gold watch, a new house on a lake, a fishing boat. That would have been extraordinary. This is ordinary stuff. But it's precious to me. So much so that whenever I clean out my closet, I can't get rid of it. You know why? Because this is an offering of love from a daughter to her daddy. So we shouldn't dare think that what we do is as ordinary as it is. If it's offered in love to Jesus, that he doesn't go, wow. It's ordinary stuff, but it was done for me. That's a totally different perspective on life. And if you know Jesus, and you know the heart of the Father, you know that he loves it when his children do things out of love for him. You have loved me so much, Father, and I am simply going to give you my life, my ordinary stuff. Here it is. It is. Precious to me. Do not diminish the importance of your ordinary life, your ordinary work. It is sacred to him. It is blessed by him. And he rejoices over it as you offer it to him in love. And I, I hope that you're able to take that perspective and just put it over your life and realize that even and especially the ordinary things matter. And to, to live that out, I think, truly is radically ordinary. I have a series of questions that are going to come up on the screen behind me. And I just want to pause at the end of this message. And I want you to just kind of read the questions and you and the Lord interact over the truth of how you would answer them. This is a time for you and him and for us to just align our hearts and lives. If we're misaligned, that God would align them um, with him. So just in time of silence, just allow these questions um, to provoke answers between you and the Lord.